I'm Dennis Reidenbach, and um, I actually grew up in Western Pennsylvania, a little town called Fair Oaks, which is uh, on the Ohio River and, and with the Quaker Valley High School, which is right outside the Pittsburgh area. When looking at colleges, um, I went to check out Grove City, fell in love with the school, uh, applied, and then um, started there in the fall of 1972, and I graduated in 1976. So I was in that unique year at Grove City. I, I actually started out, I was a political science and business double major um, because my year was the year before they switched over to what was the uh, Keystone curriculum back in the 70s. So we actually had a lot of flexibility in the class of 76 because we really didn't have any requirements. They were all released after our first semester. So I had time to do the double major. I was in, in the Sigma Alpha Sigma fraternity uh, when I was there, and then also I was in the outing club, and probably was more involved in the outing club than the, the fraternity. So my very first job, so it's unusual for somebody to end up with the park service uh, as a park super. I could, I could claim I think I'm the only park superintendent or regional director in the history of the organization whose first job was buying meat for the military. Um, I, I uh, took a job in Philadelphia. I was living in Pittsburgh. I was offered a job. Uh, with the Defense Logistics Agency uh, buying meat for the military. And so I, um, that's how I started out. And ironically, I, I, I took a position that um, had a mobility agreement. So for the first two years, I was in Philadelphia. Uh, then they transferred me to Williamsburg, Virginia. And it was when I was in Williamsburg, Virginia that, um, that when Chris and I started dating again, then ultimately getting married and moved. Our first apartment together was in Williamsburg, Virginia. I then stayed with the Department of Defense, but moved back to Philadelphia um, for more career opportunities for her, and um, then worked for the General Services Administration. All these jobs were in contract and contract negotiation. So my first job at the National Park Service was actually as the Chief of Contracting uh, for the Middle Atlantic region of the National Park Service. So I came in at a, a second level, level management position um, in the regional office of the Park Service and then decided that's where I wanted to stay. Partly, you were saying the Outing Club connection and what the Park Service uh, stands for. And um, I took a change to a lower grade and I took a step back in my career to get park experience. So I actually moved right next door to Independence Park as sort of the business manager for the park. Um, did that in part, um, we, we have two sons. Our, our oldest son um, is high functioning autistic. Um, and I wanted to stay in the Philadelphia area at that point in time. And then our younger son who ended up being the Grove City grad. Um, so I started at the Independence Park and, and that's the second part of my career that's sort of unique. With the Park Service, like the military, you move around quite a bit. Almost everybody in the Park Service gets experience at different locations. I spent my whole Park Service career in Philadelphia. So I went from being the chief of contracting to the business manager for Independence Park to the deputy superintendent of the park to the superintendent of the park, and then I became regional director for the Northeast Region of the Park Service. Um, on 9-11, I was the deputy superintendent of the park. Um, ironically, that weekend, um, we had actually been traveling to North Carolina uh, for a wedding of, um, of my wife's uh, nephew and came back on that Sunday. Um, and so I had been out of touch with the park because I had been away from Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I came back in on Monday, getting caught up on things. And then Tuesday morning, um, you know, day started sort of normal, figuring out what happened on in the park on Monday. Uh, the Deputy Superintendent of Independence Park, just by 
way of description. We had about 200 employees at that time. It was actually the seventh largest unit of the national park system as far as staffing goes and budget. Um, you know, people think of the big Western parks like Yellowstone and Yosemite that, you know, those parks have bigger budgets, but there were only like three other parks that had a bigger budget than Independence Park. Um, but on Tuesday morning would be normal, would have been checking what happened in the park the day before, looking at different reports, visitor experience, maintenance issues that came up and the like. And then um, I was at my desk. I remember vividly my wife called me and said, have, have we seen the television? Oh, well, normally during the day we would, and this is, Keeping in mind, this was before the type of social media, internet connections. Um, you know, I, I think I, at that point, I even had only, um, I'm not even sure if I had a government cell phone then. I had a, I had a beeper because we had a 24 hour dispatch operation. So if they needed to get a hold of me, they would call me on that. Um, but I was sitting at my desk and my wife called and said, uh, have you seen the television at all? And I said, no. So you need to turn the television off. There's, there's been the plane crash in New York City. And so, that point, we did have a TV at the Super Tesla's. We went and looked, and we saw. So we, like most of the American public, saw things in, unfold on television, and um, didn't really originally make the connection that this was, you know, terrorist. The, the first first plane obviously thought this was some kind of tragic accident, and with the succeeding information, we real suddenly realized that America was under attack, and. Um, and for us, because Independence Park, you know, in, in the national park system, there's always been considered, you know, secure, three security icons, the Statue of Liberty, Independence Hall, and the Liberty Bell. Well, we had two of the three uh, in Philadelphia. And obviously, you know, we were seeing what was going on in New York City, along with the monuments in Washington being of high, high profile. So we'd always, you know, in response to previous um, terrorism type activities. We always had, had a heightened level of security, which is why we, I mean, we had a 24 hour law enforcement operation going on at the park and that. And so we, at that point, we were trying to get, like everybody trying to get information what is going on. Um, we were still open. We had visitors going through Independence Hall. And so through, as the morning progressing into the afternoon and trying to make contact with our folks in you know, in our regional office, which happened, the regional office of the Park Service was in Philadelphia, next door to where the Park Service headquarters were for Independence Park. And as the day play out, that this would lead to, you know, initial things, uh, parks, parks units are supposed to stay open, we're monitoring the situation too. Probably in the early afternoon, we realized that this was something bigger. Uh, we didn't have all the details about what went on with Flight 93, but we had known that it was a fourth plane. There was concerns about you know whether there was more activity. This is it. I think at that point they started you know grounding air flights around the country and that, and so then decision was made that we would be um, shutting down uh, later in the afternoon, closing to the public, just to allow time to figure out what is going on. Uh, we then brought in all of our law enforcement staff to increase the law enforcement presence and. Uh, it was, it was sort of, even 20 years later, it was sort of a whirlwind, not knowing really what was going on like everybody else, but then figuring we needed to be uh, upping our security profile. Um, we put temporary measures in place. We, we remained closed uh, for at least another day or two before we were then told um, that we would then, at that point then, I would say that over the next couple months, we became the attention for a high level of 
Washington-based security specialists coming in, looking at our operations, making some temporary recommendations, and which ultimately led into us setting up screening. We were not screening visitors going in. Um, it meant, you know, those next few months was securing equipment to be able to screen visitors, uh, making sure that we could then open safely, uh, provide both protection for the for the the icons, Independence Hall and Liberty Bell, but also recognizing trying to protect uh, individuals and, and the like. And so these next several months really led to a uh, whole, I would say, changing security environment as, as more people weighed in, as they understood a little bit more what was going on. When we realized that forward, we needed to change our security posture. It changed because our, you know, the Park Service it's all about the visitor experience and telling America's story. Um, the idea of providing security for the icons was, was not sort of the primary responsibility, but I'd say that over that next several months, that became the primary focus. How do we protect these icons and protect the visitors to those icons? And so what you have now is everybody has to go through X-rays and magnetometers to go into Independence Hall, likewise for the Liberty Bell. A whole, a whole another level of security, and, and you know we, we don't ever discuss the the nature of all of our security measures, but obviously putting in more video surveillance, things like that, and capacity to monitor activity was all things that happened over the next eighteen months. In the history, there was in fact a hammer attack um, on the Liberty Bell. Somebody tried to hit hit the Liberty Bell with a hammer, and they were tackled. Um, there had been some minor things. There was also, you know, one of the things about Independence Park is the First Amendment is an important part of our, you know, we, we yeah, outside of Washington, D.C., there are more First Amendment people expressing their rights permits at Independence Park than anywhere else in the whole national park system. So we had a history of want, wanting um, peaceful expression of people's thoughts on both sides of any issues. Um, and so that was, that's also one of the juggling acts. And when this was going on, we were also in the part of redesigning Independence Mall is the area north of Independence uh, Hall. Uh, we were in the process of building a new visitor center, a new Liberty Bell Center, a new National Constitution Center. And we incorporated in the landscape areas for peaceful protests. But all those things are really important at the core. But there have been sit-ins. Um, we have recorded pictures during the Vietnam War, uh, people sitting in civil rights um, sit-ins, um, and even my time during their different events. Uh, um, we had, we, we've oftentimes had different groups pro and anti-gun control on two sides of the ball and trying to keep allowing both to peacefully express their point of view, yet at the same time, we wanting to allow for the visitors to still enjoy. You know, came all the way from Iowa, you don't want somebody expressing their Second Amendment or rights to keep it from being able to see in the Penn's Hall and the Liberty Bell. Our budget increased dramatically in response to 9 11. Uh, in fact, it, to deal with um, bringing an armed security guard contract. So, what we end up doing is, and what you see out there today is there's arms, there's, we, we want National Park Service Rangers, I mean, the law enforcement enforcing the laws of Park Service Rangers to do, but for security functions, we end up bringing in uh, having contracts with secure, armed security guards to man different posts to just be able to direct people, no, you can't come 
You can't come across Chestnut Street and come climb over this barricade. Plus, it also allows us to have armed security guards 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So yes, our budget increased dramatically in response to 9-11. I was the deputy superintendent and um, the person who was the uh, superintendent I first worked for uh, was transferred to Washington, D.C. Um, so I was acting superintendent for a while. And then uh, a, a woman named Mary Bomar, who had been superintendent at the Oklahoma uh, City National Memorial, uh, came in as superintendent. And I was her deputy. Um, she became the regional director of the National Park Service. And uh, she selected me to become superintendent following her. Um, she then was a she then uh, left the Career Park Service and became a political appointee. She was appointed by President George W. Bush to be the director of the National Park Service. I was a reluctant, I was happiest at, at Independence Park. Um, uh, she named me the acting regional director for, for four months. Um, I went into the job and, and suddenly I realized after having been at Independence Park for like 19 years, doing something different, was actually positive. I'd been deputy superintendent or superintendent for 14 years. Um, and, and at that point in our lives, um, number one, our, our son Matthew ha, uh, had just graduated from Grove City the year before and we got married that fall and some, his wife also from Grove City. Um, our older son uh, was work, he lives at home. He, worked, he was working full time. Um, I also realized because the regional director travels a lot, something that I didn't really want to do um, when our, our sons were growing up. I, I suddenly realized it was a job I actually liked. And so I actually applied for it and I was then selected to become the regional director. So I became regional director in September of 2007. So my first year, I was probably on the road about 50% of the time, visiting the parks I particularly I had never visited when I was working in Independence getting to know what the issues are, getting to know the con congressional delegations for each of those parks, because the parks rely on the support of the American public, but also its congressional delegation going forward. Shortly after 9-11, uh, in the months following it, um, what's, what's a, an important part of the whole Flight 93 story is several groups came together. First, the community out in Shanksville, the people who were really impacted on the ground by the, the tragic events, um, they stayed close to knit together, but the family members of, of the heroes on the, on the plane, the 40 heroes on the plane, they coalesced as a group. Um, and very early on, um, working with the congressional delegation that was pushing for the notion we need to commemorate um, this heroic event um, and, and honor the passengers on the this flight and what they did and stop from happening. So this was all taking place um, probably within, uh, starting probably within a year after 9-11. So this, so a lot of the initial planning, I was aware of what was going on, but I was not involved in because I was in Independence Park, but this was taking place. So whenever I came on board 2007, most of the plans were in place, but a lot of the implementation still needed to take place. Uh, buildings hadn't been built, uh, land hadn't been acquired, but the vision for what the memorial would look like was pretty much um, in place. But um, I got to work very close, and it's probably one of the most um, humbling and rewarding things was working with the family members and getting to know them, uh, the, the, their, their surviving family members, 
Um, I was out there every year for the memorial service when I was regional director. I actually, my wife and I attended um, the, this, the opening of the bell tower, which was the last design element in a pouring rainstorm after I retired, uh, we went out and because I just felt a close connection uh, with the family members, their stories, and um, played a small part. You know, they're, they're, the family members and the, those who were on the ground working at the park service on the ground did a lot of work. I like to think I had a small part in helping to make the success of being able to accurately tell the stories and to be honoring um, those, those heroes. You know, when you become regional director, there's, you know, you have 80 park units in your region. Um, people always ask you, what's your favorite thing? And you always make sure you don't name a favorite. But I, I just on a personal note, um, after retiring, I stayed engaged. I'm, I'm part of the Friends of Independence National Historical Park as a member. I'm a member of the Friends of Flight 93. Um, those are the two units that I personally have still stayed engaged with, follow what's going on. Um, because it meant so much. And, you know, I, I know I sent that one picture in uh, from one of the memorial services. Gordy Felt, who's the gentleman standing next to me, who was the president of the families group, somebody I became really, uh, you know, felt as a, um, a, a brother in arms as far as making sure that we move forward in getting the Flight 93 completed and open uh, com based on the design plan. So, you know, work closely with uh, several of the family members, especially, I mean, it, the, the thing that's really amazing is that the, one of the family members is a lawyer. I can't tell you how many hours he worked on the land negotiations because the families actually, before the National Park Service had money to actually pay for some of the lands, the families actually acquired some of the lands that would ultimately become Flight 93. And, you know, so there was, there was a family member, Patrick White, who was negotiating all with our lands people and all these lands transferred that they, they, they put hours and hours um, into uh, here again, honoring their loved ones, but also helping us so we would all remember uh, their sacrifice. And, and, and that's the other part about it, you know, having grown up in Western Pennsylvania, um, a, lot, a lot of things about the area, but the, the people in Western Pennsylvania are just really good people. Um, and I could see that on the ground when I would go out to Flight 93 for the annual memorial service, and I'd be out there for several days and see the relationship between the families and the coroner who handled their loved ones' remains, see the relationship between the family members and the fire company who first responded onto the site. Um, and, and, and yes, it was appreciation, but I mean, they grew together as a family. It is a, an amazing close-knit group that even now I'm sure with the 20th anniversary would still be to display as time goes on as family members get older but you, you know it's like it's almost like every year when you go there your first and primary uh, responsibility is to memorialize and honor the sacrifice but it's like seeing a family reunion these these the night me three families came together as one body but everybody else involves the national park service some of the fbi the the Pilots Association from United Airlines. Every year they send a, a cadre of pilots to Flight 93 to honor those who died um, in, the, in, the, in the crash. You just see, and it's one of those things that makes you really proud. Of, when they talk about the American spirit, those are the things that really make you proud of, um, of your fellow citizens. Um, 
supporting, they were supporting each other at the time. I mean, making meals for the family members, providing, you know, places to stay, helping, you know, helping make them feel comfortable. You know, getting to see, um, you know, one of the, one of the pastors from Japan, his mother came, comes over every year. She doesn't speak English. She brings somebody, a niece with her who could speak English. And, and seeing, you know, seeing her recognize people that she has seen every year when she's come over and knowing that they are just as committed as she is to honor uh, her son and his sacrifice on the plane. Um, but I, I also, through the, the families and their involvement and the efforts to get support, um, had an opportunity to stand at Heinz Field when the family members were honored um, uh, at Heinz Field one year, the year after the Steelers won the Super Bowl, the, flight, the, the Steelers were very big supporters of Flight 93 uh, and the Rooney family were big supporters and they, they held a fundraiser. I, I, I was at a fundraiser for the Flight 93 in my park, standing up in the park service unit, I said, here's a kid from the Swickley area who grew up idolizing Franco Harris, Rocky Blyer, and, and I'm on the, I'm speaking in the same stage as they are, and, and Rocky Blyer was a major supporter of the 1970s. He was a Vietnam War hero who played in the backfield with Franco Harris with the Steelers, but, you know, so me being a standing up on at Heinz Field for the national anthem, uh, wearing a flight 90, 93 special Steelers shirt with the family members. I have memories. There's the memorialization and the tragedy and, and that, but I, you know, really good memories too of working with the families in their effort to support it. So this, the big 10th anniversary of flight 93, they did it on the 10th, everybody there, because on the 11th, you know, obviously the president Obama was going to be going there, but as it turned out, everybody went back to D.C. I was still there. I was the senior person for the Department of Interior, so I ended up being the person greeting the president and first lady when they came the next day. And so that picture uh, that I said, said before with Corey Feldman was us um, interacting with, with the reclaim that President and Mrs. Obama did at the memorial. But so Gordy Felt and I were given the responsibility of walking in with President and Mrs. Obama when he came to speak to the audience. So he was going to all, all the sites. He helicoptered in. Um, we met him out of sight from everybody, uh, had an opportunity to um, visit some. So we're walking into the event and um, Gordy Felt and I, so the people at the White House said, okay, you all need to walk six feet behind the president at all times. Mrs. Obama, we're going up this path up a little hill to, to where it will be. So we're doing that, but we're a little early. So they're holding us before he's going to be called out. So we're standing back there and Obama turns to us and says, why don't you guys come over, come, come closer, let's talk. So we look at the, the person who instructed us was right there. And we're looking and, and also Obama goes, they're always trying to tell me what to do. I said, why don't you come over and talk to me? <laughs> and so Gordy goes, yes, sir, Mr. President. And so we walked over and we had a, a nice chat. And, and, and here we have Bamos asking Gordy about his brother, what he did, you know, just that connection with the, these folks who've gone through, so even 10 years later. Um, but I, I, I just had a chuckle with Obama saying, they're always trying to tell me what to do at these events um so anyway then he went out and um but another positive memory of uh 
of like 93 and, and Courtney and I getting to chuckle about, you know, subsequent years, you know, about uh, being told what to do with the credit overrule of his staff. And I can tell you I've many tears shed. You know, I, in fact, I say, I'll probably have to my glasses here. Um, you know, being out there from memorial services though and having, hearing a 13 year old whose father perished and being there to, to honor the memory. I mean, your memory's like that too. So, so the, you know, but that's a good memory too. I mean, it's a reminder of the fragility of life, but to see a young person who's been there every year. And, you know, another one that sticks in my mind is, um, I mentioned Mrs. Ogata from Japan um, I can remember being there, and it, it, it probably, um, I have to get my year straight, it was, it would have been the 10th anniversary year, um, in 2011, so I'm regional director, um, everybody, there was a big, there was a big ceremony for the 10th anniversary, understandable, um, Secretary of Interior came, the Director of the Park Service, all the congressional delegation, Vice President Biden came. And um, you know, when you're superintendent of the Independence Party, you get to meet presidents, you know, I, I, you know, because they all, come, they all end up coming to Independence Park and vice presidents. Uh, I had met Vice President Biden before. Um, I had been talking to Mrs. Ogata. Um, this was after the ceremony that, that he was interacting with the family members um, I was talking to her and she was commenting about why it would be nice to meet the vice president. So I went over to the vice president and said, Mrs. Ogata would really appreciate you know, a little bit of her story in that. And I witnessed then Vice President Biden going over to her and sharing about when he lost his wife in a car accident tragically. And um, seeing the human side of one of our elected officials now, you know, putting all the politics aside, presidents, and but, but to see him as a man reaching out to this per person who was a U.S. citizen, nobody could vote, et cetera, for him, et cetera, and just that, those things, those are the memories I have also that are just deeply inside me from my Flight 93 experience. You know, and I think it, it's all, you know, losing a loved one, you know, and especially in such a unexpected and, and, and well, so well publicized thing. I mean, everybody deals with grief and losing a loved one differently, especially if in a tragic accident, but one that was on the national stage just changes um, it. But, you know, these, these are just, I, I have to say that um, the hugs from family members were just as important, probably more memorable than hugs from Michelle Obama, being able to go back every year and that knowing that they knew that that all of us in the National Park Service family were doing everything possible, humanly possible, to honor their loved ones and to tell their story going forward um, was, was extremely gratifying.